The Bible says don't judge. Well, it does and it doesn't. So we're going to look at that this morning and talk about that. Matthew chapter 7, once you've found that, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're able to, please, Matthew 7, and we'll read from verse 1 down through verse number 5. We'll begin together in verse 1 and then read every other verse together down through verse Number five. The Bible says, beginning together, verse one, ready? Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote? Out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. The title of the sermon this morning is a question, and it's this Are Christians called to judge? Are Christians called to judge? Let's consider that this morning. Lord, thank you for a chance to gather together. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you how it is a help to each of us. Lord, here at our church, we value it. We treasure it. We hold it high. It's the authority here in this church. And so, Lord, help it to be the authority in each one of our hearts. Lord, help us to make changes that put ourselves more in line with the Bible this morning. Lord, I pray if there's one here today that's not yet put their faith and trust in you for salvation, that they do so before it's eternally too late. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want to begin by saying how thankful I am to be, have been born in the United States of America. My three favorite colors, as far as the combination go, are red, white, and blue. I love the Star-Spangled Banner. I love the song, America the Beautiful. And I love the song, I'm Proud to Be an American. I love Memorial Day picnics. We'll have one here in a couple of, or on this coming Memorial Day at Booth Park. That's the plan. I love Fourth of July get togethers and fireworks. I am thankful to live in what I believe to be the greatest country on planet Earth. Back in 1787, the framers of the Constitution gave the greatest governmental experiment that has ever been experienced. For 234 years, we have been governed by the same document. A document that is meant to separate the powers between the federal and state governments. And then within the federal government, it further divides the powers between three equal yet separate branches of government. Our justice system, however, is far from perfect. Far from perfect. But why? Why is our judgment system, justice system flawed? Let me give you three quick reasons here. Number one, no judge or jury can ever truly know all the facts. It's impossible. Someone said, well, there's two sides to every story. Truthfully, there's three sides to every story or four sides to every story. There's, there's the two different sides that we traditionally think of, but then there's that third party uh, uh, person who views it, and then there's what actually happened, the actual facts. And so no judge or jury can ever truly know all the facts. Why? They're not omniscient. They're not God. Every judge or jury sees the world and the accused through some sort of distorted worldview. doesn't matter who the judge is or who the jury is. We all, every one of us, have some sort of a worldview that is distorted. And what is it distorted by? Well, that brings us to number three. No judge or jury is perfect. Why? Because sin, sin has marred all of us on some level and in some way. Where there are sinful people passing down rulings, there will always be error. There will always be error. Where there are sinful people passing down rulings, there is room for corruption. Um, lady justice is supposed to be blind. But if we're honest, in America, Lady Justice is not blind. Lady Justice is not blind, at least in most instances. There seems to be a two-tier justice system that's developed in America over the last, uh, I would say it's been around for a long time. It's been more evident and obvious over the last several decades. 
And while I love America, I am not blind to the fact that she has her share of imperfections. That's not meant to take a shot at any political party. Uh, There's corruption on both sides of the political aisle. There's all kinds of corruption because why? It boils down to the fact that we are sinful and we have a sinful nature. I believe that God does not want you and I to pass judgment on our peers. God does not want you to stand in His place and do His job. However, however, the Christian is called upon and expected to rule his own house well and is expected to know how to discern in others and to uh, distance themselves from others who are a bad influence and then abstain from fellowship. So with that said, with that said, let's uh, seek to understand this topic of judging as we seek to answer the question, are Christians called to judge? All right, let's look at four main thoughts on this topic. All right, number one, number one, notice an explanation about judging, an explanation about judging. If you received a bulletin on your way this in this morning, I encourage you to take notes on the back of your bulletin, an explanation about judging. And so here in the uh, first point of the sermon, we're going to spend quite a bit of time. Uh, in fact, the majority of the sermon this morning will be in point one, and then points two, three, and four will move through rather quickly. And I want to lay out for you uh, just the idea of judging here. No, notice letter A, when judging is commanded, when judging is Commanded. In order to understand judgment, we must begin with an understanding of authority. Authority. All power, all authority comes from God. And through the Bible, we have an understanding of how He distributes that authority. Listen up now. If you hold God-given authority, then you have a responsibility to discern right from wrong and you have a responsibility to punish wrongdoing. Now, um, in the Bible, there are three institutions, three institutions that God gives us that are relevant to our time and culture that God created. Let me talk about those here quickly, okay? First of all, let's talk about the home, the home. Uh, what is the order of authority within the home? Watch this now. It's God. God is to have the utmost authority in the home. And then, by the Bible, by the Bible, it's the husband, and then the wife, and then the children. God, husband, wife, children. Now, I don't care if you don't like that, and I don't mean to be mean or rude or unkind. That is what the Bible says. The Bible says that God is the supreme authority in the home, and the husband is to submit himself to God's authority, and the wife is to submit herself to the husband's authority and God's authority, and the children are to come in under, uh, authority-wise, under the wife or mother, the husband or father, and then God. That is the structure. That is the structure. If a husband, now listen up here, if a husband does not submit to God's judgment in his life, then he very well may lose credibility to be able to judge his home. Take your Bibles to Colossians 3 and verse 17. Colossians 3 and verse 17. Hold your place there in Matthew. We'll be back in Matthew. Colossians 3.17. I want you to understand that God is the supreme authority in a home, and the husband is to submit to God's authority. Look at verse 17. The Bible says, I'll begin reading, And whatsoever ye do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now, these, these words we just read preface instruction on the home and the structure of the home. And so uh, Paul begins his instruction of the home by saying, whatever you do as a family, you need to do it under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be the lead. He is to be the authority. God is to be in charge. Now, if a wife does not submit to her husband's judgments in her life, then she very well may lose credibility in judging her children. So watch this now. The husband has a responsibility to yield to the Bible, to yield to God, to make sure that he is in line with and submissive to what God says. 
when the wife looks at the husband and sees that he is submissive and subservient to God, it makes it easier for the wife to then turn around and be submissive to a husband who she sees is submissive to his authority. It's really wrong for a husband to wag his finger in his wife's face and preach Ephesians 5.22 to her and say, Woman, the Bible says you are to submit to me while that husband is defiant to the authority of God in his own life. Husbands must learn, first and foremost, to submit. And when a wife sees that the husband has a tender heart to making changes to and obeying God's authority in his life, it makes it that much easier for her to say, well, if you can submit to your authority, then I can submit to my God-given authority. Colossians 3, verse number 18. Look at verse 18. The Bible says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and be not bitter against them. And here we have a beautiful cycle of love and respect, love and submission that perpetuates a marriage and makes it go. When the husband loves his wife and uh, does so by taking God's love and passing it along to her, it is that much easier for the wife to follow her husband's leadership in the home. Now watch this. When a wife is submissive, to her husband, even when it is not convenient for her, even when it is not easy for her, even when it takes a lot of self-discipline and self-control and self-denial, it gives her that much more credibility and authority with the children. The children will have a much easier time respecting mom and obeying mom when she sees that mom is submissive to dad and dad is submissive to God. Uh, Look with me at Colossians 3 and verse number 20. The Bible says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, and that word fathers is our word for parents. Fathers or parents, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. How do you provoke a child to anger? Here's how you do it. Be really hard on your children about submitting and obeying while you turn around to your authorities and you do not submit or obey. You know what that's called? That's called being a hypocrite. Boy, husbands would give themselves a lot more credibilities with their wife if that husband was submissive to God. Wives would give themselves a whole lot more authority with their children if they were submissive to their husband and God. And so here we see God's system for the home. Now look, I know, I get that everything I'm saying is politically incorrect. I get that what I'm saying, the feminist uh, uh, movement would scoff at and push away from and call 1950s uh, uh, home and that we have progressed past that. I would argue that we have digressed from that. Look at the homes today. Whatever we're doing isn't working. Divorce lawyers are getting rich because we have gotten away from the biblical model. And I will stand here and I will proclaim this as the biblical model until God calls me home to heaven or I'm locked away in a prison cell and my voice is taken away. I will proclaim this because it's God's model. God made Adam, God made Eve, and God makes every child that's born on this planet and God gets to dictate the structure of the home. It's not our duty to argue with it, it's our duty to follow it. Now what happens here? What happens here is that we've gotten away from the biblical model of the home. And so now it's gotten very difficult to pass down judgment within the home. Within the home. When I use that word judgment, I don't mean just discerning. I mean punishing wrongdoing. Punishing wrongdoing. We're at a time and place now where we're more concerned about being friends with each other than using the authority God's given us to lead each other. Lead each other. We had uh, some friends of ours come over to our house. Uh, Angel and I were newlyweds. They only been married a year or two. Um, Matthew was maybe six months old. And a, a friend of mine from my childhood years and his wife came over. And uh, they, they came over to our house for dinner. And they had a little toddler. And I, I just remember uh, that uh, that little toddler was the parent. And the parents were the child. Because that toddler told the parents what to do. How many of you have seen this play out before? You know what I'm talking about. Go to a Chick-fil-A play place. You'll see it all the time. Okay? See it play out all the time. Parent tells the child, it's time to go. No! 
kicking and screaming. 30 minutes later, they're still there and the child's still playing. And um, you know why? Because the parents aren't in charge. Parents aren't judging. Parents aren't judging. When is judging commanded? Judging is commanded when you have the God-given authority to lead, when you have the God-given authority to, to, to uh, uh, make sure that the authority you've been given by God is exercised in a way that brings about righteous behavior. Proverbs 13.24 tells us, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him be times. Chasteneth him be times. You've heard the old adage, spare the rod, spoil the child. You know, that's a biblical truth. It's a biblical truth. Now, should you spank teenagers? Ah, that's debatable. But should you spank a two-year-old? A little swat on the bottom goes a long ways. Goes a long ways. Maybe with a teenager you don't spank, but boy, you sure should punish. You should find those pressure points and you should push. Amen? Too many moms and dads are too concerned about being friends with their children. And the old adage is that rules without relationship equals rebellion. Can I tell you, that's not really the problem in culture today. The problem in culture today is relationship minus rules equals rebellion. We want to have a relationship with our kids, but we don't want to enforce any rules. We let our kids run all over us. You know what equals successful parenting is relationship plus rules. Relationship plus structure. And the deeper that relationship goes with that child, the deeper you get to enforce the rules without rebellion. Boy, we need parents who will get back to using the authority God's giving them and judging. Now let me just speak to the husband-wife element of this here, okay? Uh, I've been married for coming up on 14 years this June and love, love, love being married. Thankful that God's allowed me to be married. God doesn't call everybody to be married and if you're not married here, in no way is this meant to make you feel like you are less. God calls some people to be single. He has a great plan for your life. Embrace that and enjoy it and you are on equal footing with people that are married in my book. Amen? Uh, but, if, uh, but as a married man, there have been times in our marriage where I have looked at Angela going in a way that maybe her emotions have led her, and I've had to say, I just don't think that's the best way to go. Now, uh, do, I, do I inflict uh, pain on Angela the way I do my children by spanking them? No. No. But there is some instruction there. There is some leadership there. And I see too many men in today's culture who let their wives run the home, run the show, run everything, and the husband just sits idly by with his hands in the air and says, Honey, you do what you want. And I just want to say, Husband, sometimes conflict is necessary in order to get your home where it needs to go. And I'm not saying you yell at your spouse. That's always inappropriate. I'm not saying that it's ever appropriate to be mean to your spouse. But I am saying that if God has given you the discernment on what's right and wrong in your home, you are to lead that home uh, forward. And if that means a little bit of strife and a little bit of conflict along the way, then you endure, you absorb that conflict, and you lead your home forward. What is it okay to judge? It's okay to be a judge in the home, but you must know your role within the home and you must lead accordingly. Let's talk about government for a moment. We talked about three institutions in the Bible that uh, relate to or are relevant to us today. Turn over to Romans chapter 13 and verse number 1. Romans chapter 13, and let's look at verse number 1. Again, we're going to spend the majority of the message today in point number 1. Don't look at the clock and think, oh man, uh, we're going to be here till 2 p.m. No, I promise to let you out by 1.30 p.m. Amen. Romans 13 and verse number 1. Under promise, over deliver. Amen. The Bible says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. All power, all power comes from God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, speaking of government, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation or condemnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, 
but to the evil. Notice here that the role of a ruler is to bring terror to evil. Look at, verse, uh, look at the rest of the verse. Wilt thou then be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he, the government, is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, look at this next phrase here, to execute, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Him that doeth evil. It is the duty of the government to exercise wrath upon evildoers. It is the duty of the government. When a court is called into session and someone who has committed a crime is brought into court and they are tried through our justice system by a jury of their peers and they are found guilty of the crime that they're charged with. Is that system perfect? Absolutely not. But is that system endorsed and ordained by God? Absolutely yes. God has given us government in order to help us execute wrongdoing on the earth. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, does the government always get it right? No, they don't. Again, is the government sometimes corrupt? Yes, it is. Is it more corrupt than other countries in America? Oftentimes, yes. But there is definitely corruption in our system. I'll be the first to admit that. I'd be the first to stand up and say that. Uh, why? We looked at that in the beginning of the sermon. Because people are sinful and sinners make bad decisions Sometimes people are limited in their knowledge. They don't always get it. What are we called to do as Christians? Are we called to watch the news uh, 24-7 and have strong political opinions and rant and rave and hammer each other over, uh, hammer people over the head that disagree with us? No, we're not. No, we're not. Are we called as uh, Christians to, um, uh, to, uh, to get involved politically? Sometimes we are. God does call certain Christians to run for office. God does call certain Christians to step up and fill those roles and help lead the country in a right way. But as a Christian, if you're not running for public office, what is God, what is your role? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 1. It says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. Look at verse 2. For kings and for all that are in authority. Those are our judges. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For, there, they, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Too many Christians are too politically charged. You know what our duty is as Christians? It's to get on our knees and call out our political leaders by name and ask God to bless them and guide them and lead them. Uh, I, I may not be real popular for what I'm about to say, but I don't care. Some of you here still have not accepted Joe Biden as your president. Shame on you. Get on your knees and pray for that man. He's your president. I don't care what you think about the last election and how it went and you have your theories, that's fine. God could have stepped in and stopped him from being president if he so chose. And he did it. Whether you think the election was stolen or not is at this point irrelevant. You need to get on your knees and you need to pray for your president. You need to pray for your vice president, Kamala Harris. You need to pray for your governor, Ned Lamont. You need to pray for your mayor of your town. You need to pray for the senators that represent us in the Senate. You need to pray for those who represent us in the House. You need to pray that God will allow them as allow us as Christians to live a quiet and peaceable life. Now, if that bothers you, if that upsets you, if that got your blood boiling this morning, let me just make this statement to you. And I'm not again, I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm just trying to help you to understand something. If that bothers you, you are too politically charged. And you need to take a step back and ask God to help you get some spiritual discernment in you when it comes to these things. By the way, if you think our system is corrupt, if you think our system is broken, please understand that when Paul wrote this to Timothy, he was getting ready to go sit in a jail cell where the king would have his head cut off. 
as bad as you think it is today, it was far worse in Bible times. And Paul told Timothy, your duty as a Christian is to get on your knees and pray. And pray. Pray they'll leave you alone so you can be a great Christian. We okay this morning? We all right this morning? We need to get on our knees and we need to pray for all of our political leaders. I, I see far too many Christians belittle and berate and make fun of their president. And I saw it with President Trump. I saw it with President Obama. I saw it with the first President Bush. I saw it with the second President Bush. Maybe not online, but listen, the jokes that went around and the belittling and the that's not my president attitude with President Trump and the that's not my president attitude with President Biden. Listen, it's not our duty to worry about those things. God picks up leaders and puts down leaders. It's our duty to vote as American citizens and then it's our duty to get on our knees and pray and we leave the rest up to God. Now I'm going to add something in the sermon that I didn't have planned. Take your Bibles over to Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1. I think this is an important point for all of us to understand. I want you to understand that the hostility of the day politically was sharp and far worse than it is in America. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is getting ready to ascend up into heaven. Those of you watching online, I, I just added this, so these verses won't be uh, in your live stream, okay? Look at Acts chapter 1, and uh, you have to get your Bible out there at home and look these up with me. And uh, look with me at verse number uh, 5. Jesus is speaking here. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days since. So picture this. Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives. He's getting ready to send up into the heavens. He's getting ready to give his disciples that last charge. The very last question the disciples ask Jesus is a political question. Look at verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, Israel was under Roman rule. And Israel wanted political freedom. And so they look at Jesus and say, well, we wanted you to lead us to political revolution, and you didn't. At this time, are you going to restore political freedom? Now look at Jesus' response in verse number 7. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. You know what Jesus is telling them? Don't worry about politics. I, I, I'll take care of that. That's in my power. That's under my control. I will put up kings and put down kings. I will put up rulers and put down rulers. Here's your responsibility. Look at verse 8. But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. What, are, what, what is the responsibility of the Christian? We have a different kingdom we're trying to build. It's not a political kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said, I'm going to give you political, rather, I'm going to give you power, and that authority of yours is not a political authority, it's a spiritual authority, and you're going to go out and you're going to proclaim the gospel all over the world. Yes, governors will punish you. Yes, governors will lock you up. Yes, kings will chop your heads off and murder you, but you get busy proclaiming the gospel and you let me worry about politics. Christian, I would encourage you today to just trust God that He is sovereign and He is in control. What is the other institution where God has commanded judgment? Notice the church. The church. Um, go back with, or rather turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. Now notice the structure of leadership within a church or authority within the church. The ultimate leader of the church is the good shepherd, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is known as the living word, and the Bible you hold in your, uh, in your laps or, or that are by you, this is the written word. So, this is the written form of the authority of our church right here. If the Bible is not held high, then that church is, is in rebellion to the structure that God has in place. 
This is Jesus in written form. And this is to be the authority of our church. So Jesus Christ is the authority in the church. And then below the good shepherd or the great shepherd is the under shepherd or the position of pastor. And then uh, below that authority is the role of the deacons. And then below that is the church members. And so like the home, a pastor's obedience and acceptance to God's judgments in his life is foundational to his authority, to his credibility in leadership of the church. Look at 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Now here's what the word of God is to be, how it's to be used within the church. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, let's see here. Doctrine teaches us what's right. Reproof teaches us what's wrong. Correction tells us how to get right, and instruction tells us how to stay right. Okay? So the pastor is to use the Word of God to reprove, correct, rebuke, and teach doctrine. Look at verse 17, that the man of God, that's the pastor, may be mature or perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The pastor is to take the Bible and is to teach it to the church, is to use it to, at times, rebuke those that are out of line, to reprove and to uh, uh, instruct uh, righteousness to the church. Now, here are some other areas of authority where we're called to judge, okay? The employer-employee relationship. You're in 2 Timothy 3. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Bible says, verse number 1, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. If you've agreed to go work for someone and they are your employer, then you are to be a servant to them and you are to fulfill the duty and uh, obligation of that role. And so they have authority in your life within the purview of those work confines. And so uh, there is judgment that's passed there. As an employer, uh, an employer has the right to hire and fire. The employer has the right to uh, have people help him and move other people along that aren't viewed as part of the team or the long-term plan. And so the authority lies with the employer. The employee is to submit to that authority. How about the lender and the borrower? The lender and the borrower. Proverbs 22, 7 says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. So there's authority given to the lender who lends out money to those that borrow. I have a mortgage, and if I were to quit paying my mortgage, guess what? The lender has a right to kick me out of that house and take the property back. Why? Because I am subservient to them under the terms of that contract. And so we see when judging is commanded. Are Christians called to judge? Where God's given you authority, you better judge. You better judge. But in every other instance, you better not judge. Notice letter B, when judging is condemned. When judging is condemned. Go back to Matthew chapter 7 with me in your Bibles where we started. Matthew chapter number 7. And look with me at verse number 1 and we'll read verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, or give it out, it shall be measured to you again. I think of that, when I read verse 2, I think of that phrase, if you, if you dish it out, you better be able to take it, right? And uh, we, we want to judge, but we don't want to be judged. We want to pass judgment, and uh, we want to condemn others. Now, um, here's a simple rule to follow when it comes to whether or not you have the right to judge. Right? Here's a simple rule. If someone is not under your authority, then you have no right to judge them. That's it. If someone is not under your authority, you have no right to judge them. How do we judge people? Well, when I say judge, I mean like a judge hands out a sentencing. We hand out sentencings to people. And it might be cutting off a relationship. And listen, sometimes you need to distance yourself from someone. We'll talk about that more in a minute. 
But oftentimes somebody's doing something and it does not warrant us cutting off a relationship, but we do it anyway because we're trying to teach them a lesson. Maybe it's a cold shoulder. Maybe it's body language that says, I don't care for your attitude or behavior, and so I'm going to try to manipulate you into being who I want you to be. Maybe it's gossiping and running around and talking about someone behind their back in an attempt to smear their reputation or expose their lack of character. What are we doing? We're, we're judging. We're judging. And I would just want to say here that God does call us to discern, but He does not call us to judge. He does not call us to judge. Let me illustrate that if I could. I was riding down the road some time back with my children in the car. We pulled up to a red light. And an old car pulled up next to us. Some of you will remember this from the 90s and early 2000s. This was more prominent. An old Crown Victoria pulled up next to us. This guy had his back seat filled with a subwoofer. And he had our entire car just shaking. I mean, the, 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 the uh, fillings in my teeth I thought were going to fall out. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You ever been next to someone at a red light like that? And you know what I did? I took a moment and I used that as a discernment to teach my children right from wrong. Right from wrong. Was I judging the person? No. No. In fact, every Saturday and Sunday, uh, my kids get into one of our vehicles and we head down to neighborhoods where that type of music is everywhere and we minister to those people. We're not cutting them off. We're not going to cut our love off or the love of God off from them, but we are going to use it as a moment to teach our children right from wrong. Right from wrong. Um, we, we, we become judges of our peers when we become snotty and uh, nose up in the air and stuck up toward people who don't behave the way we think they should. You, you remember the Pharisee Jesus talked about who stood up you know, in the center of everyone and sort of stuck his chest out and said, I thank thee, God, that I'm not like that publican over there in the corner. He's using his position to condemn. To condemn. There's nothing wrong with that Pharisee looking at the publican and knowing, hey, I better be careful around that guy because he's a tax collector. He might try to take more than he should, and I'm not going to trust him I'm going to be careful around him, but at the same time, I'm going to go near him and I'm going to show him the love of God. You can discern without judging. And God has called us to discern, but he's not called us always to judge. In fact, when it comes to our peers, those that are not under our purview of authority, we are not to be their judge. God is their judge. An explanation about judging. Number two, notice the epitome of a judge. The epitome of a judge. Take your Bibles over to Romans chapter number 2. Romans chapter number 2. Last Sunday morning we read through much of Romans 1 with little comment in church. And I, and I did that for two reasons. One, it worked in the sermon. But two, I wanted to set the stage for the message this morning. Romans 1 goes through and lays out the sins of the Gentiles of that time. And gives us a downward slope into depravity. And talks about how that they weren't thankful and then their unthankfulness led to uh, an attitude of humanism where they knew God but they glorified the, uh, not God and became vain in their imaginations. And that humanism led to a secularism which led to a paganism which led to uh, an attitude of environmentalism, a worshiping of uh, the creation over the creator which led to a lifestyle of homosexuality which led to being turned over to a reprobate mind. And so Paul lays out what he views as going on in the Gentile culture of his day. And the book of Romans was written to the church at Rome, which had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And so he calls out Gentile sin with his God-given authority, but then he turns around and tells the Jews in that church in Romans 2, but don't you judge because you have your own sins. Look at Romans 2 verse 1. Oh, rather, uh, let's do this. Letter A. Let me give you letter A. Notice, speaking about God, our perfect judge, notice His perfection. His perfection. 
Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 2. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up that line of thought that I just shared in a moment. Verse 2, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And so here, these Roman, or rather these Jewish Christians in this church at Rome wanted to turn around and judge their peers of whom they had no authority over. And Paul reminds them, you don't need to be their judge because God is their judge and he is a perfect judge. Again, verse 2 says, according to truth. The judgment of God is according to truth. When God hands down punishments, consequences, otherwise known as condemnation, he does so with perfect knowledge of every detail of everything. You may mistreat me, and I may feel like you wronged me, and I have my view on it, but the truth is that my knowledge and understanding of the situation is limited by my own bias, and my own understanding, and my own idea, or rather my own gathering of the facts. I'm lacking, I'm missing. And so when I want to judge you, Boy, I can't do that very well, especially if you're my peer. I'm wrong to do that. But God can judge. God can judge. And God is the perfect judge because he has all the facts. He has all the knowledge. And his ways, in, when it comes to judgment, are perfect. The perfect judge. The epitome of a judge. Notice letter B, his perception. His perception. Look at Romans 2 verse 4. Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness... And forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. I've had people who've wronged me, smeared my name, attacked my family, hurt me deeply. Can I tell you what my temptation is? It's the same as I believe yours is. It's to stand up and seek vengeance. I remember someone who was counseling me once through a hardship of mistreatment looked at me and said, he said, Richard, I just want you to brace for a moment and think that when you've mistreated people in the past, you've wanted God's grace to be shown to you. Is that true? And I put my head down because I knew where he was going. And I said, yeah, it's true. He said, then you must give room for God's grace to be shown to people that also mistreat you. Verse 4 says that sometimes God uses the riches of His goodness to bring people to repentance. Sometimes God will pour down a heavy blessing on someone who's mistreated you. And through that method, God gets them to repent from the evil they did to you. You see, God has a perception of it that we just don't have. God understands it like we just don't understand it. And when we step up and want to judge, God says, get out of my way. I know what I'm doing. I see all. I know all. And I will handle it in my time. I've had to go to traffic court a couple of times. In my younger years, I was a speed demon. I still drive fast, but I've just found that the police officers in Connecticut don't pull very many people over. When I lived in Indiana, where I went to college, they, they, they pulled you over all the time. There was a speed trap uh, in um, Indiana that I'd go through on my way to work, and the speed would drop from like 45 to 25 to this one little section. And the reason why it was that way, I, I believe it was twofold. Number one, it was a school zone. And, uh, you know, we need to drive slow in school zone areas because we don't need to be running over children. We'll run the risk of running over children. Amen? How many agree with that? Okay. And so the, it, it was justified, um, but I wasn't driving through there during school hours. I was driving through there at like 1 a.m. Uh, when all the children would have been hopefully in bed sleeping. It was an elementary school we were, we were driving past. And uh, so I think the second reason why it was there is it, um, it was helping pay the city bills, all the tickets that were given out. And I got pulled over a lot. I mean a lot through that one little space. I think in five years of driving through there, I probably got pulled over seven or eight times. You thought I'd learned my lesson, but 1 a.m., you're sometimes a little delirious. One time I got a ticket for going 27 in that 25. So you can see, you can see the struggle. 
So I've, I've, been to, I've been to traffic court my share of times. And you know, if you've ever been to traffic court, by the way, this will help me feel better about myself. How many of you have ever been to traffic court? Raise your hand. Okay, now I don't feel so bad. All right. Okay. The rest of you are probably lying. Amen. Um, I'm sitting there in traffic court, and it's not usually it's not just traffic court. It's more like misdemeanor court. And so people who've committed various misdemeanors are coming before the judge. And the judge is sort of judge and jury in these situations. And you know what I watched? I watched as these judges would take first-time offenders and show them a lot of grace. Let them go. And uh, let them off with just maybe a little slap on the wrist. Sometimes someone mistreats you, and God just gives them a slap on the wrist and lets them go. You think, what? Do you know what they did to me? And you're indignant. But then when God slaps you on the wrist and lets you go, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. There are two, there are two attributes that make up God's character. They are mercy and truth. And the Bible tells us that God is a perfect balance of mercy and truth. Psalm 86.15 says, But thou, O Lord, art a God of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. This is something that you and I will never, ever totally have in balance. And because we will never have it in balance, we'll never be the perfect judge. But God is the perfect judge because His perception is, is reality. His perception is perfect. The epitome of a judge, we see His perfection His perception, letter C, notice his patience. His patience. Look back at Romans chapter 2 and look at verse number 4. The Bible says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? Look down at verse number 7. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. God is patient. He's forbearing. He's long-suffering. He gives us all the room in the world to get it figured out. I've heard someone say once that God is a God of the second chance. Can I tell you that when it comes to this sinner right here, God is the God of the millionth chance. There's an old song. Some of you may hear, in here may know it. It goes like this. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars the sun and the earth, Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be, he's still working on me. There really ought to be a sign on my heart, don't judge me yet, there's some unfinished parts, but I'll be perfect just according to his plan, perfected by the Master's loving hand. You know the chorus, sing it with me. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun, the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. Aren't you glad that he's been so patient with you? Maybe you can be patient with others. Maybe you can be patient with others. And again, I'm not speaking about being patient with others who are under your jurisdiction of authority. You know, where correction is needed, you correct. But where I'm speaking about is people who are not under your jurisdiction. Maybe show them some patience. Maybe show God some patience and understand God's in control. Number three, lastly, notice the error in our judging. The error in our judging. I'm sorry, I've got one point after that. The error in our judging. Let her quickly notice we stand in God's place. Go back to Matthew chapter 7 with me. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 2. The error in our judging, we stand in God's place. Matthew 7, 2 says, For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Uh, when you judge, you are standing in God's place. You are trying to do God's job. Turn over to Matthew chapter 5 
and verse number 21. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 21. And the Bible says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. In danger of the judgment. It's not our place to cast judgment on our peers. It's God's place to cast judgment because all authority belongs to God. What was the mistake that Lucifer made as an archangel in heaven? He tried to stand in God's place. He tried to become God. And my friend, when you judge someone that is not under your jurisdiction, when you cast judgment on someone and you try to condemn and punish someone that is not under your judgment, you are trying to stand in the place of God. Uh, You are in error. Let her be noticed. We ignore our own faults. We ignore our own faults. Look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 3. Matthew 7, 3. The Bible says, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Jesus is using hyperbole here. Look at verse 4. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull uh, out the mote out of thine own eye, and cast, uh, uh, behold, a beam is is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. And I love the exaggerated illustration Jesus uses here. He says, it's like you're standing there and you're pointing out a fault in someone saying, hey, you got a little speck of dust in your eye there. Hold still, hold that eyeball open, and I'm going to get in there and I'm going to pull that little speck of dust out. And all the while, you've got a telephone pole hanging out of your own eyeball. Right? And uh, we, look, we, we nitpick and we criticize and we put down and, we, and we, 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 we belittle and we make fun of and we condemn and we judge when all the while we each have our own shortcomings. Look, uh, look, at, look with me at um, Romans chapter 2 verse 1. Romans 2 verse 1. If you've already lost your place there, I'll just read it for you. The Bible says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest, doest the same things. Now again, remember, that church in Rome was filled with people historically were Jew and Gentile. And Paul lays into Gentile sin in Romans chapter 1, and he knows that the Jews in the church are going to bow up with pride and say, Oh, Paul, get them! And then Paul turns around in Romans chapter 2 and says to the Jews, Hey, you be careful, you that judge. You're guilty of the same thing. It might look a little different. It may be a little bit different. But listen, you are guilty of the same thing. What did James tell us in chapter 2 in verse 10? That if you offend any point of the law, you've broken the whole law. We want to point fingers at people who live in some particular sin and we want to judge and condemn and put them down and belittle them and make fun of them. My friend, it is not your place to judge. You have struggles. I see Christians who berate and put down and make fun of those who are homosexuals. The Bible couldn't be any more clear. Homosexuality is a sin. And we're not going to get into the details of that this this morning. But I see a lot of Christians who berate homosexuals while they themselves have their own sexual sins they struggle with. Men in this country are addicted to pornography at a clip that is unfathomable. I read a report recently that said two of the top ten websites in the U.S. that are visited every year are pornographic websites. And listen, and again, I'm not trying to cast judgment on anyone this morning, although I'm the pastor. It's my job to preach the Bible. And so in that sense, there might be some judgment cast here. I'm not trying to belittle anyone. There's a good chance there's a lot of men in this room right now that are addicted to pornography. Sometimes we stand up and we preach and proclaim homosexuality is a sin. Abortion is a sin. And that's true. Have you stopped to think that the pornography industry is largely responsible for a whole lot of abortion that takes place in this country? You want to harp on abortion while you yourself are consuming pornography. 
Thou art inexcusable, O man. Get the beam out of your own eye before you go poking at the speck of dirt in someone else's eye. Hey, listen, you're no different than that Pharisee who stood up there at the temple and said, I thank thee, God, that I am not like that sinner over there. You may just be a little bit more subtle about it, less overt about it, more covert about it. Hey, Christian, let's be careful. You know what I see when I see people who are, who are drowning in their sin and even celebrating their sin? I don't want to stand up and say, You're a horrible person. You should be condemned. You know what I want to do? I want to get on my knees and I want to cry out to God with tears in my eyes and I want to pray for them that God will heal them. That is a mature Christian response. Now, there's a place for a church to stand up against the culture of sin that's being ramrodded down our throats. There's a place for Christians to stand up against that. But you stand up against sin and you, you preach against sin and you take a strong stand against sin, but you be kind to sinners. I will not stand up here and uh, use homophobic slurs and berate and belittle and cause people who, feel, uh, who, who, uh, who struggle with their sexuality to feel uncomfortable here by calling them names. I will preach against the sin. I will never preach against the sinner because Jesus was surrounded by sinners. In fact, he was accused of, of keeping company with publicans and sinners. Many believe Mary Magdalene was a harlot before Jesus rescued her and helped her and saved her. Jesus announced his ministry to a woman who had been divorced five times and was, was living with a the man there at, uh, at, at, at Sychar's well. He announced his public ministry to her. And the Pharisees were religious, but they were wicked in their hearts. My friend, we need Christians who will love sinners and hate sin. We need Christians who will embrace the sinner and love on them and show them the love of Christ and where God can help them get past their shortcomings. Because my friend, you and I each have our own shortcomings. When we cast judgment on someone else, what we really need to do is go stand in front of a mirror and look long and hard because we have our own shortcomings. We ignore our own faults. Letter C, notice, we repulse the lost. We repulse the lost. There is nothing worse than a person who claims to be a Christian, who goes around creating controversy with what they say and do, uh, uh, and then is seen as having their own shortcomings. You just create all kinds of problems in the kingdom of heaven. The number one reason why people don't want to have anything to do with God is because the Christians they know do not well represent God. Listen, I know the world oftentimes will try to hold you to a standard of perfection. But the reality is they don't expect you to be perfect. But what they don't want you to do is come, to, come at them with a smug attitude while it's obvious you have your own shortcomings. Aren't you glad God showed you grace? Well, maybe we should show some grace. If you claim to be a Christian and you are repulsive, then they will assume that your God is equally repulsive. Because for many people, the only Bible they will ever read is the Christians they know. Here's a good principle to live by. Let God judge or condemn others. You just worry about those under your jurisdiction... When it comes to everyone else, you just worry about loving others. Loving others. Where would I be if it weren't for the love of God and the grace of God in my life? Where would you be if God's love had not reached down to you in a moment of sinful weakness and loved you past it? Or maybe God wants you to love The truth is that the only crowd that God continued to berate and hit over the head were Pharisees. God didn't preach hard sermons to 
homosexuals. God didn't preach hard sermons to drunks. God didn't reprimand tax collectors. In fact, he called Matthew to follow him, and he called Zacchaeus to salvation. He loved on him. Some folks here would love me to be more of an in-your-face, rear-back, let-it-fly, mean preacher. That's not who Jesus was, unless he was preaching against pharisaicalism. Then, go to Matthew 23, not now on your own time. You know what he called Pharisees? He called them snakes and vipers. You want to have a judgmental spirit toward the world, my friend, you are a snake and a viper. You're a Pharisee. If that makes you uncomfortable, then maybe you shouldn't go to church here. God ran the Pharisees out of the temple, and I think a whole lot of Pharisees need to leave church. Church would be a better place for it. I don't want anyone to leave. I'd rather you repent and get your heart right. Number one, we see an explanation about judging. Number two, the epitome of a judge. Number three, the error in our judging. Number four, lastly, notice the embracement of humility. Look back at Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 5. The Bible says, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. You see, we look in the mirror and we deal with ourselves. And then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. There is, listen up, there is a time and place to help a brother or sister in the Lord who is struggling with sin. There is a time and place for that. Here's the process. You see someone who's battling sin in their life, who's a peer, brother or sister, and you care for them. Here's the process. You get on your knees and you deal with your own private sin. You humble your heart. You go to them with a spirit that wants to help. You show them grace. And if they reject that, then you've done your part. The attempt is not to condemn. The attempt is to restore. You understand? It all comes down to motive. Is your motive to condemn or to restore? I see a lot of people who will look at a Christian who's backslidden and say, well, I just don't think they're saved. You know what you're doing? You're condemning. You're calling into question their salvation. Now watch this. That there's nothing wrong with questioning someone's salvation if you're doing it out of a spirit of concern for them, love for them. I love them so much. They've strayed so far from God. If they're not saved, boy, I want to help restore them. I want them to come to Christ. We must fight the battle against sin in our own lives. You know what happens when we fight the battle against sin in our own lives? It humbles us. I look at people who are wrapped up in addiction. When I was a young man, I would look at people like that and I would label them as bad people. I would condemn them. Then one day, I realized that I had a temper problem that was out of control. And boy, I got down and I began to fight against my anger. I began to do battle with my temper. I got down in the trenches and went to war. Begged God to give me self-control. And you know what I learned is that that journey was hard and on some level continues to be hard. And I realized that people are trapped. I was trapped by anger. Other people are trapped by other sins. You know what I didn't need while I was battling my anger problem? I didn't need someone to come along and be condescending and judgmental my direction. I needed someone to come along and put their arm around me and say, let me love you through this. Let me help you through this. And I'm thankful for a wife that did and continues to do so. Well, the world needs Christians who love. 
Let's let God be judge. Where it's not our jurisdiction, let's let God be judge. And when the systems fail because of sinful man, we don't need to get up in arms. We need to pray and trust God that he'll be the ultimate judge and he'll take care of it. Do you have a judgmental spirit today? If you do, I'd like to encourage you to stop. Stop trying to do God's job. Stop ignoring or minimizing your own faults. Stop pushing people away from God with an arrogant spirit. It's time we look in the mirror. It's time that we deal with our own sin. It's time that we humbly seek to help others around us. Maybe you're here this morning and God's called you to judge in certain areas and you've you've neglected your duties. Then I would say start judging. Where God's given you power and authority, then step up and lead. And be the judge God's called you to be. Are Christians called to judge? In some ways, yes. But in all other ways, no. Christian, are we doing what we're supposed to do with this area this morning? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed. Lord, some difficult things have been said today. But Lord, I pray they've been said with the right spirit. Work in our hearts like only you can and convict where conviction's needed. Lord, we need parents and husbands and wives. We need presidents and governors and mayors, police officers, judges, juries that will judge with righteous judgment. And then, Lord, we need Christians who will quit judging people who are outside of their jurisdiction or realm. We need Christians who will show love and let you step in and do your part. Lord, this sermon will apply differently according on the person. The Spirit of God make the applications as needed. In Jesus' name.